So, Matthew 24, yes? Matthew 24. Did I? You know, here's the problem. Here's the problem. It's probably my problem. But because I teach, I preach on Sundays, of course, and I teach here, and then I also teach the book of Revelation on Wednesday night. And sometimes I get mixed up uh, what I've said to which group. So, did I go to Matthew 24 last week with this group? All right, so I must have done it on Wednesday last week with the Revelation people. All right. Well, this will be more in depth, but we still, we, we can't tarry for applications or anything like this. Uh, and for those of you that have, uh, <coughs> have been, are new, then there's a bunch of covenantal stuff and stuff that you'll recognize in the Old Testament that, um, you know, you may not recognize. And I'll try and tie things off for you as we go through. Okay. Let's have a look at then at verse 1. Uh, no, actually, let's, let's look at um, verse 37 of the previous chapter. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So the house that is spoken of in verse 38 of Matthew 23 is the temple of verse 1 of chapter 24. So again, we're, we're on peculiarly Israelitish, Israelitish grounds here. And that's where we need to stay. Uh, it's important that we, we just stay with the context. We try and stay with where the listeners were. And we don't introduce things from our context. He's speaking about Jerusalem here because Jerusalem has rejected him and is about to crucify him. And he shows his willingness to save. Now, this is an important verse. It's one of those verses that cuts against certain theologies um, and shouldn't. Shouldn't. But uh, many many people of the Calvinist persuasion, I'm pretty Calvinistic myself, but many people of the Calvinist persuasion have all kinds of trouble with this verse. I kind of read around it and say it's only talking about the Pharisees and the leadership and something like that. That's clearly not what he's talking about. He's talking about whole, the whole of Jerusalem and he's talking about your house, the, 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 the city of the king. This is very much an Old Testament type lamentation that we see here. 
You kill the prophets and stone those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, but you were not willing. The problem was not God's willingness. The problem was the people's unwillingness, their hardness of heart. Now, theologically, we're not doing systematic theology here. This does not mean, I want you to go away thinking here, that this means that um, God is waiting around for us to decide what we're going to do before he's decided what he's going to do. God knows everything and um, all of our decisions are included in the plan of God. But that does not mean, and it logically doesn't mean either, that the reaction of Jesus here is not a heartfelt reaction. He truly does feel the pain of rejection. And this is a true offer. What is important here in this verse is that we see that the gospel of the kingdom that's been preached through Matthew's gospel, and of course through the other gospels, uh, particularly the synoptic ones, that that was an offer. This makes it clear. It was an offer that if they'd have accepted, he would have gathered them together. Do you see? He would have acted. Um, But he says, you were not willing. And, uh, you know, I could use this, if this was a systematic theology class, I could use this verse and, and spend the whole class on this verse and associated verses and dealing with uh, this human sin and enmity towards God, but the fact that God will not and does not um, override or make a decision for the sinner. He doesn't do that. So there's that kind of um, tension in salvation all through the Bible. God's got to do something. He doesn't just stand there tapping his foot because if he did that, we would never come. So he's got to do something. The initiative is always with God. If the initiative was with us, we would be damned and we wouldn't be uh, sat around here studying the word of God. Do you see? But at the same time, the decision is man's. It's ours. Your house is left to you desolate. Well, it wasn't. I mean, it's right there. I mean, he's walking out of it in the next chapter, isn't he? So, what do we mean? Well, look at the context. Look at these great buildings, the disciples said. They must have heard what he said in verse 38 of the previous chapter, because they were there. But they still, being disciples, being the kind of disciples that they were, being like us, their head wasn't completely in the game. What on earth could Jesus be talking about? Your house is left to you desolate. Look at these beautiful buildings. Gives Jesus the opportunity to say that not one stone will be left upon the other that will not be thrown down later on. Do you see? That's what he's talking about. Now, that happened in AD 70 when Titus's armies came through. But then, that's what we find in verse 38. But in verse 39, 
we have something that uh, that is lines up much more with those verses that we saw in the last course that spoke about the time when uh, God would would only come to Israel once they were repentant. I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, there's a till. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They didn't say that here. They're just about to crucify him. They have to have a change of heart about Jesus. The Jews and Jerusalem have not had a change of heart for 2,000 years about Jesus. Until they do, they will not see him. Do you see? Uh, if you'll turn really quick, let's just um, belt through a couple of things here. Go to Hosea chapter 5. <clears throat> Come on, Bible drill, hurry up. All right. Now, most of Hosea chapter 5 is God having a go at Israel. But um, at the end, <clears throat> verse 15, he says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offence. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Do you see that? And then, uh, upon the lips of Israel in chapter 6, which uh, I've no idea why the first three verses of chapter 6 are not tagged onto the end of chapter 5, because they obviously go together. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. This is the language of repentance. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that he, we might live in his sight. Notice that, that we might live in his sight. That's what God's wanted with Israel and not gotten from Israel. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Hey, that would be wonderful if we read that somewhere in the Old Testament, that the whole house of Israel were pursuing the knowledge of God. We see some people doing that, but not a lot of them. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. With a blessing, in other words. Do you see? Israel does not have any natural water courses. Um, unless it rains on Israel, Israel dries up. Unless it has the dew later on in the year and the, and the rains, and the latter rains, it dries up. So, uh, the way that, that Israel is, it's kind of, uh, you have the coastal lands here and then you have lands that kind of go up like this, okay, with Jerusalem on the top here, and then it goes down into the valley country, okay, and then it goes up into the mountainous wilderness country, okay, Gennesaret. So here, this is where Jericho would be, which is another J, so I guess I've got to spell it out. So this area, which is not like, it's more kind of like that anyway, this area, the rains, and here's a nice little fluffy cloud here, raining. The rains come on this part of Israel. This is where the, um, you know, all of the produce is from, okay, the production. 
Down here, so this has as, as much rain as London. Here, Jericho, which is, I don't know, 20 miles away, not that. Uh, that has about three inches of rain a year. Okay, it's desert. It's wilderness. So just imagine if the rains didn't come here. I mean, everything would die. So the rains, because the, the Jordan runs through here, do you see? And that, so it's no good for anything as far as irrigation is concerned. Um, so the rains are absolutely essential for life in Israel. Israel is dependent upon the former and the latter rains. So God is coming, uh, his coming is likened to those rains. And you see how important that, that analogy is to, to Israel. Alright, so, enough of my terrible drawing. What he's saying here then is, uh, is that when they go out to God, he will come and he will bless them. That's the, that's the idea. This time of repentance. But this time of repentance, if you've read Hosea, you know that Hosea is all about indictments about uh, Israel. Using kind of the language of the law courts, actually. And it doesn't get any better, does it? If you've read the other prophets. I mean, you get tired of reading this stuff. You know, Jeremiah. Um, did you know that Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, by the way? It actually is, yeah. Jeremiah, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. You think, I'm through this, I'm through Jeremiah, and then it's got another ten chapters on the end that are moaning and groaning. And, um, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that, that just is, is negative, okay, because of the sin of Israel and uh, their unwillingness to do anything about it. And that certainly was the case in the time of Jesus, wasn't it? And it's been the case since. So, what is it talking about here then? Hosea is predicting something. He's predicting an acknowledgement of sin and a blessing from God. What on earth can he be talking about? I believe this is, this is again, kind of the thing that Jesus is feeding from here. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you recognize me, you will not see me. Until you repent, I will not come. And it's the same thing here, you see. They're turning, they're repenting, but it's taking affliction, notice verse 15, to bring them to it. That affliction, I take to be what we're going to read about in Matthew 24. Okay? Uh, what about the stuff about two days and the third day in, in uh, verse 2? Okay, here's my take on this. You ready? I haven't got the foggiest idea. Um, the thing is, there is nothing to compare it to in the rest of Scripture. So it's probably a figure of speech. And if you take it as a figure of speech, what do you think it would mean? After two days... On the third day, that means not very long from now. You see? So I think it has the idea of it's going to come. Now, Hosea was an 8th century BC prophet. So what do you mean it's just around the corner? Okay, 2,700 years. That's not two or three days. What's God talking about here? 
Well, look at the context. The context is, once they begin to turn, once they begin to turn, God will bring, yes, there will be suffering, but then there will be blessing. That will come quickly. Okay. Uh, Look at uh, Deuteronomy and chapter 4. And let's go to verse, uh, I can find this here. Verse twenty, verse 26, we'll go from verse 26, alright? I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that's creation, that you will utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. I mean, good news. Moses is full of, you know, cheery news, isn't he? And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left a few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hand, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. So that's the thing. That's true repentance. Do you see that? That's Deuteronomy 4.29. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days and obey his voice for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. There's the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see? So this idea of trouble coming, but then God acting once Israel repent is uh, founded on covenant promises. Do you see? Okay, back to Matthew 24. So Matthew 24 ought to be interpreted within this covenantal framework. This is what I'm saying. But it says two things going on here and we need to separate them. Because verse 38 of Matthew 23 is about 70 AD. Verse 39 is about times of tribulation and then the second coming. And what happens after that. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple and Jesus said to him, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is a little time later, his disciples came to him privately. Can you see there's a, there's a time gap? Saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Some people have three questions there. Some people have two questions. I don't care um, how you count them. There's really two questions, I think. But there's a double barrel question about uh, the sign of your coming and the end of the age because the sign of Jesus coming marks the end of the age. And they finally got that. 
They finally got it. I mean, he predicted it in chapter 13. He's been talking about it all this time. I remember last week that we were in Luke 19, uh, verse 11. He said this parable because there were those there that thought that the kingdom should appear immediately. Do you remember that? He said that there's this nobleman, he goes away to receive a a kingdom and he comes back. Okay? All right. So which of these questions is he going to answer? Is he going to answer both of them? In which case he's talking about 70 AD and the second coming. Or is he just going to talk about one of them? Let's see what we can locate. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And many will come... Actually, I've already read that verse, so let's read the next one. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the, what? The end is not yet. What have they asked about? Verse 3. The end of the age. That's one of the things they've asked about. Do you see that? And they have asked about signs, but yes, the end of the age. So here, this has already clues you into which of those questions he's answering. He's talking about the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Okay, if you look at the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6, you will see that the white horse rider comes forth conquering and to conquer. The uh, red horse rider, he comes forward and he takes peace from the earth. The black horse rider, he uh, brings famine apart from rich people because it doesn't. It says touch not the oil and the, and the wine. That's for rich people. But otherwise, things are being weighed for a great deal of, of money. Uh, barley and flour and so on. Uh, people have estimated that it's somewhere around uh, 80% hike in prices. Um, and then you've got the pale horse rider and he's, I mean, he's identified as death and he's riding along with his buddy Hades. And uh, they haven't come to do anything good. In fact, they've come to kill and using the other horsemen to do it. Do you see? So you've got these ideas. Now, right at the end of, of chapter 6, you've got people saying to the mountains, fall on us. Fall on us. Okay? Say, hide us from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb which is second coming language. Just before that, you have the souls at the, in the, at the altar, or under the altar in heaven, and they are crying out to God, when are you going to avenge us for the things that have been perpetrated against us? That's obviously, I would say, tribulation saints. They would be the kind of saints that will go through what we're going to read here. Okay? Just to give you that kind of context. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So, 
uh, there's a lot of nasty stuff happening, but that's just the start of things, he's saying. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. What's the end? Yes, yes, you see. The end is that that period. Now, uh, I need to come back to that in a minute. Okay, because you, you've got a contradiction here, or it seems to be a contradiction, that you're going to be killed, but then if you endure, you'll be saved. Well, what about the ones who were killed? Aren't they saved? Clearly, the endurance to the end is the endurance to the end of your life in this situation. But if you get through it also, uh, faithfully, you will be saved too. Uh, it can't be he who doesn't get killed is going to be saved. Because in chapter 25 of Matthew, you have the division of the sheep and the goats after that. Not everybody makes it. Secondly, that would make it a tautology. Do you see? It would mean he that makes it through to the end, makes it through to the end. If you make salvation an actual physical salvation. You might as well say, who that, he that is saved through it, is saved through it which is a tautology, and Jesus doesn't deal in tautologies. That's how you know your theology is again up the creek. But he who endures to the end are the people that are enduring even this this uh, hatred because they're identified with Jesus. Now look at verse 14. This is going to set the context for us. This gospel of the kingdom. What gospel of the kingdom? This one. The one he's been preaching. Jesus, in chapter 3, was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. That's what John the Baptist was preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is at hand. You never find Jesus preaching, or the disciples preaching, the death and resurrection of Jesus in the gospels. He talks about it a couple of times, in secret. And his disciples don't get it. But he doesn't preach it. Now in a parable, he mentions it. Do you see? But they didn't even, you know, really understand that. But he never overtly preaches it. His death and resurrection. So the gospel, the good news that is being preached in Matthew or Luke, cannot be the Pauline gospel. Folks, that doesn't mark me off as being an ultra-dispensationalist. It just marks me off as somebody who's reading the Bible. Okay, I'm not an ultra-dispensationalist at all. I'm not even, you know, I don't have much time for a lot of dispensations. I'm more interested in the covenants. But it's just a matter of fact that you don't see anybody preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels for a good reason. Because that's not what's being offered. It's not, hey guys... You're going to kill me. I'm going to rise again. After that, you can believe in me. There's good news. Okay? No, he's not saying that. He's saying, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. You should believe me. And who I am. And embrace who I am. 
We saw last week that he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, the kingdom is within you, meaning the kingdom's, I'm right here. I'm right here within you, in your midst. But you can't see who I really am. I mean, he could have done another Mount of Transfiguration right in front of them, couldn't he? Because he said that that was the kingdom of God that they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he didn't do that because the kingdom of God doesn't come with outward observation, he says in that very context. There's enough in the miracles. Remember? In John's Gospel, he says, if you don't believe my words, believe the miracles. Um, the, the Father has sent me. There's enough going on for them to accept, but they don't accept. The, what is being preached is the kingdom, that if they'll believe in him, that he is truly the son of David, the Messiah, the promised seed, um, the kingdom would come in. It's a bona fide offer, guys. Yet he knew they wouldn't, which means that he, it was also necessary for him to die. Okay, the two things are not contradictory because God knows and our reactions are built into his plan. Do you see that? There are reactions. I mean, he's not making us react. There are reactions, but he also, they're built into his plan. Um, so the kingdom of, that's being preached here to all the world as a witness to all the nations is not the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the kingdom that Matthew speaks about in his gospel, which is that the kingdom is coming, the king is coming, and the kingdom is around the, the, the bend. Then the end will come, do you see? Now, folks, why do you think, therefore, he's going to warn about false Christs? Why do you think he's going to warn about false prophets? Well, if he's preaching the Pauline gospel of death and resurrection, you know, that doesn't include the second coming of Christ. I mean, it just includes the fact that Jesus is coming back someday, doesn't it? Yes? So, nobody's going to, you know, that's not a problem for if he's preaching that gospel. I mean, you just believe that and you're saved. I mean, if you... If you Believe a false teacher, you believe a false teacher, but you know that's not that's not going to imperil your soul. But if the gospel is the king is coming, Jesus is coming back, do you see? And somebody claims to be Christ, ah, that one could, do you see? False prophets are rising up, that one could imperil your soul, do you see? Now let's see this how it works out. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, the holy place is the holy of holies in the temple. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, not in America, in Judea. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. We don't live on housetops, but they do in the Middle East. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. 
and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. The only Sabbath the Bible knows about is the seventh day Sabbath. It doesn't know anything about Sunday being a Sabbath. That's Christian theologians. The Bible says nothing about it. Okay? So this again, it's Israel. The context is Israel. Judea, housetops, Sabbath. Do you see that? This time of of difficulty, the holy place, that's the temple. What's the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet? Good idea to do is to go to Daniel the prophet and, and read it. Daniel chapter 12. That's the end of a, a, a kind of a big message from the angel. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, that's the archangel Michael, shall stand up the great prince that stands watch over the sons of your people. That's Daniel's people, Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Take note of that, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's a good thing. Yes, they're going to be glorified. I think that, that that's kind of the language, a poetic way of talking about that. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and the Lord shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and there stood two others, one like this, uh, one on this riverbank and the other on the other riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever that it will be for a time, times and half a time. When the people of the uh, power of the holy people has been completely shattered, the holy people is Israel. All these things shall be finished. Okay, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, "My Lord, what shall be the end of these things?" And he said, "Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end." You see that. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, where's the daily sacrifice offered? In the temple. And the abomination of desolation is set up. There should be 1,290 days, which we did in the last course, and I'm not going to do it and repeat it now. But notice these ingredients, okay? A time of great trouble and strife for, uh, for Israel, after which people will be saved. Do you see that? It's going to be the end when this happens. The time of trouble is going to last for uh, or particular difficulty for a time, times and half a time. 
which again we did in the last course. So, you know, cliff notes, three and a half years. And then the, um, these things are sealed to the end and then the sacrifice is to be taken away and the abomination is to be set up, obviously, in its place. Do you see? So this is something that is set up at this time of difficulty and strife within this time of the times, time and half a time, the three and a half years, and uh, the people of Israel are going to be, suffer great strife. This is what he's talking about. So he's tying these verses together for you. Flee to the mountains when you see this abomination of desolation set up, this image set up in the temple. Flee to the mountains. You know, look, if you stand around gaping at, at, at it, you're going to be killed. Pray that your flight's not in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Because Sabbath days, they're not, yes, there's a, it's a day of rest, you see. For then, verse 21, there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time known or ever shall be. Well, that sounds very much like what Daniel just said. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those written in the book. Remember? Daniel said, those written in the book, for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Can you put yourself in this situation? Get yourself out of the... uh, the church and Paul's gospel because that's Paul's not even saved yet. Okay, we're still in Old Testament test, uh, you know, territory here. This we're in prophetic territory. And put yourself in that. And what are people saying? Uh, here's Christ. He's got, he's over here. We've seen him. And here's a false prophet. And look at the signs and the wonders he's doing. He's of God. Do you see? This is a time of confusion and a time where people are going to claim to be Christ. People who claim to be Christ nowadays, they're nutcases. Um, These people are going to have some power to deceive. Now look what he says. See, I told you beforehand, therefore if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Why? For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And we saw this last week in Luke, didn't we? Okay, same passage. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and power, with power and great glory. And you find that in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. The... Uh, Son of man who comes from the ancient of days with the kingdom. He comes with the clouds of heaven. Do you see? See how it goes together? Even though 
uh, I'm going fast through this. For those of you who've been through quite a bit of this with me, you should be pulling this stuff together pretty easily. Okay? Those of you that haven't, you still should be pulling some of it together fairly well. Um, the gospel of the kingdom then, you get that and you make sure that that's the gospel that, that you read about that's only being preached in Matthew 10 to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not going out to everybody. And that it's the kingdom is coming and, and uh, so on. If that is it, in the tribulation period, they're, they're preaching, he's coming, he's coming. I know we're going through this difficulty, but he's coming back. In fact, he's come back. Here he is, he's over here. Don't go. There'll be a temptation to go. There'll be a temptation to follow the crowd. Okay? Do you see how it makes sense? John? In the last class we talked about the tribulation and then the second coming, coming from the, down the heavens in the clouds. But we also mentioned that the, the rising up of the believers beforehand. Of the what? The pre-trib. Yeah, well, though we didn't, I, I didn't talk about the trip, the uh, pre-trib because we haven't, we're not even with the God, the doctrine of the church yet. Right, so I'm saying Jesus covers all that right here. Well, he doesn't. He, that. he doesn't actually deal with the pre-tribulational rapture. Right, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay, yeah. See that in this. Okay, he covers everything else. Yes, he does. Yeah, from a, an Old Testament viewpoint, we're still very much in Old Testament prophetic grounds. Nothing's changed. And therefore, people that read the gospel, they read the church into the gospels and read everything, you put a Christian sheen on everything, they're reading the gospels wrong. I'm sorry, they are. They're reading the gospels wrongly. You read the gospels from the Old Testament perspective and through and you'll see that they don't contradict the Old Testament. If you read the Gospels the other way, straight away you get a clash with the Old Testament prophets because you're reading them wrong. Do you see that? <clears throat> yeah, I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss something. No, no, thank you for that. Yeah. Okay, so, um, Matthew 24, therefore, is repeating the materials that we talked about from Luke last week adding some stuff in there I hope that you can see also um, but again where are we? We're right the way through the Gospels and Matthew's focus is on the Jews yes and Luke's focus remember last week Luke's focus even though it's written to Gentiles the focus is still on the Old Testament prophets um, yes there's blessings for the Gentiles but the prophets foretold that anyway so are we okay with this you've got the kind of basic gist of it okay then we are okay to go to uh, Luke again Luke 24, yep. <clears throat> so Jesus um, 
he's been killed and proclaimed the kingdom of the Jews. Uh, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices that they had prepared. They found the to- stone rolled away from the tomb. They did not find the body of the Lord. So were they going to ask the guards to move the stone so they could go and prepare the body? Like, what was their plan? Well, they didn't have a plan. They didn't have a plan. No, they're just distressed women. They're not sure what they're going to do. Yeah. Yeah, they just... I was thinking about that. Yeah, no, that's a good question. But commentators have often pointed this out, that the women didn't really seem to have a plan. You know, they just wanted to try their best. Yeah. And uh, one of the angels says in verse 7, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Okay? Which is what he had said to them. They kind of didn't get it. And they remembered his words. Now that, uh, the stuff on the third day... You can't really find that in the Old Testament, but Jesus predicts it. And Jesus is a prophet. He's a prophet like unto Moses. No, no, that was not about the resurrection. And that's what some commentators do with Hosea 6 2 and don't do that. It's it's just completely wrong context. Yes. Yeah, no, we shouldn't do that. Yeah. So. so they remembered. Okay, so you've got Mary Magdalene and so on tells the um, the men. Peter rose, verse 12, and ran to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves and departed marveling to himself at what had happened. Then you have the two uh, guys traveling to Emmaus. It's, just, it's a seven-mile uh, trip. So... You know, it's what, two hours, two and a half hours, something like that. He can get quite a lot said. But let's just keep that in mind. This is not all day. Okay. They talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned. So they're on the road already. They've already gone, who knows, a mile, two miles down the road. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who have not known the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? Now Jesus asked questions to set the stage for what he wants to do. Okay, He's setting them up in a sense. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. What does that mean to redeem Israel? Well, if you look at the passages that have to do with redemption of Israel like in Jeremiah 31 and um, Hosea 2 and 
and uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37 and well loads of other passages um, this has to do with not just people getting saved it has to do with the, res- the complete restoration of Israel and Israel being entering into its glorified age entering into the covenant promises that's the idea here okay So, we, we trusted that that's what he was coming to do. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. Then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Well, it's not the major theme of the Old Testament. But it is a, it is a theme. Particularly you find it in Isaiah 52 and 53. It's right there. Well, 52, 53, 54. Uh, you see it. And so you see it in Psalm 22. So you certainly see it in Jesus' preaching. So if this is the case, then they're very slow to see what was clearly uh, taught to them by the prophets and by Jesus himself. So two things here. Suffered these things? Yes, the suffering servant passages. And to enter his glory, I think that's not just going to heaven. Okay, that's not just the ascension. Please don't think that. It's entering into the kingdom of his glory. Okay, remember Luke last week? Uh, Again, um, in fact, let's just go there. Uh, Luke 19... Uh, No, Luke 21, sorry. Second coming passage in verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Do you see that? Yeah? So that's not the... That's the second coming when he comes... That's the second coming, there. Yes. So, the glory you see, is Jesus coming in his kingdom. And again, what's he done? He's got the two, he's done the, got the two phases of the work of Christ and he's put them, sandwiched them together again. Like the prophets do. Like we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Okay? We, if you're celebrating it right, Jesus said, I will not partake of this Cup until I partake it of you with you again in the kingdom of God. You ought to be looking forward as well as looking back. Do you see? This is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Well, the new covenant in the Old Testament is uh, not just salvation for individual people. It's salvation for the world. It's the renovation of the whole world. It's 
it pulls together all of the covenants, and we'll we'll see that soon. So he says, "Do this in remembrance of me." Should it really be do this in anticipation of me? Both things: remembrance, first coming; anticipation, second coming. It fuses the two together. Okay, just like those Christmas passages do. All right. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. He indicated that he would have gone farther and they constrained him saying, abide with with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And you know what happens. He took bread, blessed it, broke it and disappeared. Uh, So they don't get there. They're nearing they're nearing the village. So, you know, several hundred yards off, I don't know, half a mile off, something like that. And he joins them while they're already on the way. So let's say they've gone a mile down the road. That leaves six miles. Um, six miles even at three miles an hour is two hours. Okay? But maybe there's half a mile for them to go when they say, well, why don't you come with us? Something like that. So, five and a half miles, roughly, you know. Um, Does he have enough time to go through every single passage in the Old Testament and talk to them about himself? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. What he does do is he has the opportunity to go from Genesis... You know, Genesis 3.15, Genesis 22.18, Genesis 49.8, and through to Exodus with the, the uh, sacrificial lamb and so on. Uh, that idea there, because he's been proclaimed as the lamb of God, remember. So stuff out of Leviticus maybe as well in that. The prophet like unto Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, Numbers, Numbers 24 is certainly a passage that he would have gone to, 24.9 and so on, about the king and about the scepter and the star. I see him now, uh, I see him, but not now. Do you see that passage from Balaam's prophecy? He would have pulled those out and uh, he would have gone into uh, maybe passages. He's the commander of the God's army in uh, Joshua chapter 5. He would have possibly gone there. He would have talked about the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, certainly. And then he's got all the prophets to deal with. And the messianic prophecies of Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11 and Isaiah um, 40 and um, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 52, 53, 54, um, 60. Arise, shine, you know, and so on. 61, which is, uh, he already spoke about at the synagogue in Nazareth. Uh, 62, and I think it's 62 with the, the Bueller and Hepzibah, that beautiful passage there, poetic passage about the restoration of Israel. 63, again, second coming stuff. Uh, 65, 66, restoration stuff. And then you've got Jeremiah, and you've got Jeremiah 23, and you've got Jeremiah 30 through uh, 33. You've got Ezekiel, and Ezekiel, I can't remember now, but uh, Ezekiel 30, certainly, probably all the way through to 
passages in verse in chapter 48 because he's the one in Ezekiel 43 who comes into the temple and sits there. Remember? And then you've got the minor prophets that he has to... Well, there's Daniel. There's Daniel 7 and there's Daniel 2 and there's Daniel uh, 9. Good grief. This is a lot of stuff. Isn't it? And and you can you can be quite clear that he did it a lot slower than I've just done it then, you see? So, in two hours of a casual conversation about this, you see, he's talking about himself and all of the messianic prophecies uh, that are in there. He's not even filling out this kind of stuff that we've been doing, all of the covenantal stuff too. Um... So, there is nothing, please don't think, when you read this passage, that uh, Jesus is doing anything other than reading the prophets at face value. That's what he's doing. He's just, he's not spiritualizing stuff. He's not, you know, reading the church into this. He's just going through what the passages say and how they predict him. These two men he's with, would have fully understood what he's talking about. Yeah, they certainly wouldn't have understood it if he started going on about the church. No. You see? Now, in Matthew 16, it is true that Jesus predicts the church. But he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, last week, do you remember? Uh, in fact, no, we got to do that. That's, that's another thing we've got to do. Very important. <clears throat> Um, last week we spoke about the um, the Lord's table, didn't we? We did, or didn't we? Or was it another group that I was talking to? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? You know. Okay. Did we do that? I'm. You know. I. I, I sometimes don't remember what happened earlier today, but. but that's kind of, do you see what we're, we're, we're set up for all of this? And we have to stay within the expectations that these Jews who only had the Old Testament and all of their background teaching about it and all their expectations of who Jesus was, they were reading the prophets at face value. And they had come to this conclusion based on the covenants of God that he, well, here he is. When's the kingdom are coming? <clears throat> All right. Makes sense because there's no language that's going to be thousands of years apart from it. Right. No. No. Apart from this hint now in several places of it's not going to come immediately. Now, do you see? And remember, Daniel. The <laughs> Never mind about that. <laughs> just, just ignore him. <laughs> So, all right, let's take a, a little pause there and we'll, um, we can understand then that we're basically now towards the end of um, what we find in uh, the Old Testament. What's going to happen in the book of Acts is going to perhaps, is going to surprise them and we maybe can feel something of that surprise if we'll just stick in the context. 
And that's what I want you to do. I want you to feel some of the surprise when we get to Acts. So, nice deep breath. Cleansing breath. And then uh, what we'll do is that we'll just recap some of this expectation. Okay. So, the Noahic Covenant, as we've seen before, it's kind of, it's a stage setter. It sets the stage and it's made with what? Come on. All creation, you're very, very slow. <laughs> it's made with all creation. Okay. Um, then you've got the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant has these three prongs to it of uh, a particular nation, okay? Uh, descendants. Descendants. And then also it deals with land. And then it deals with blessing for the nations. Through Abraham. Now also, not only is there descendants, but there's also a descendant. Okay, yes. Who is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. Okay, the seed of the woman. What's that? Yeshua. Jesus. Oh. So, then you've got, here you've got the uh, Mosaic Covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant is, first of all, it's law and it's also broken. Okay? By the people. It's, this one is unilateral. This one's unilateral. This one's bilateral. Okay, if you look at uh, Exodus chapter 24, the people, Moses uh, sprinkles the, he reads the, the, the covenant out, the book of the covenant out, and then he sprinkles the people and they say, yeah, we agree to this. Okay, he doesn't do that with Abraham. Abraham doesn't agree to anything. He just, you know, he's asleep. Noah doesn't agree to the covenant. He's told to build a boat, but there's no... You know, he says, I will make a covenant. But the covenant isn't made until after he's built the boat and um, survived a global flood and made an offering, you see. So the Mosaic covenant is law, it's broken, and therefore it's temporary. It can only be temporary. This is everlasting, this is everlasting. Then you've got the priestly covenant... which is in Numbers 25, which is with Phineas, remember? And this deals with the uh, line of Phineas, okay? Who are the Zadokites. We particularly hear about the Zadokites in uh, Ezekiel chapter 42 through to... 48. 
Okay, they are allowed to approach to the Lord. The other Levites are not. Okay, so this is not a Mosaic covenant. It's it's made within the time scale of the Mosaic covenant, as because the Mosaic covenant does preserve Israel. Okay, as a people. And that's a peculiar nation. But this transcends the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, then you have the Davidic Covenant. And of course this has to do with a king and a kingdom. Uh, given to Israel. Alright, so, and uh, this kind of harks back a little bit to this, uh, Genesis 17. And then you have, well, this, let's kind of stop there. Um, this one can be kind of sectioned off or cordoned off from the other unconditional covenants uh, because it kind of sets the stage. It's, it's, it's about the physical, the, the non-human um, um, world, in a sense. It's about the, the environment that is made for man in Genesis 1. Okay? And it preserves it. Preserves the man's environment after the flood. Um, but this one, we'll kind of discount that one because it's, it can't save anyone, can't do anything because we keep breaking it. Well, Israel keep breaking it. So this one, this one, and this one, they, they promise wonderful things, great things, they're everlasting. Trouble is, they're made with sinners. And sinners have a terrible habit of messing things up all the time. If God was to give all of these blessings, kingdom and everything, if he was going to give uh, all these blessings to sinners, they'd foul it up even worse than Adam did. Uh, and then what would, what would the prophet be? Where would the glory be for God? He can't fulfill covenants with sinners. But the problem is, None of these covenants have built within them the means of their own uh, fulfillment. Because the thing that's needed, that is absent, is cleansing from sin. Do you see that? So therefore you need the new covenant. Okay? Because the new covenant provides salvation or redemption and restoration. Okay, and you could even say, in a sense, it's a relative glorification. Oh, an important piece. Okay. So, the new covenant. The new covenant is what pulls these together. Alright? And we did a little bit of Isaiah 42 
and Isaiah 49 last week. I do remember doing that with you guys. Uh, to notice that Jesus himself is the covenant. Okay. In that spirit then, let's look again at the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, verse 19. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. What's he doing? The Bible's really clear, folks, okay? He's instituting this. Finally, he's instituting this with a bunch of Israelites. And he's instituting it with his own blood. Remember I said, the new covenant is him. So it's his blood. You can't get much more of him than his blood. He's the covenant. What do you have to believe in? Him. Do you see? So, here, what is he doing? He's tying together these covenants. He hasn't altered, in fact, I, you know, in, in Luke 19 and 21, and here we've gone on even further, and we've gone to Luke 24, and he hasn't altered the Old Testament expectation which means the new covenant that he brings in doesn't alter the Old Testament expectation. Doesn't alter it. That's really, really important for you to understand. Okay? Kind of at a... Um, you know, if, if you guys had rejected that point, I'd probably walk out, you know, with a, tears in my eyes. And, uh, yes, just grab my money and go because and never come back again because I would have failed to communicate to you what Jesus was doing here and how he was pulling these things together okay now can you see because you might ask well okay if he's pulling them together how come Israel hasn't got the Davidic kingdom yet and how come the temple hasn't been rebuilt yet and how come they haven't got the land properly yet do you see not the land deeded in Genesis 15 which is about 300,000 square miles uh, why why haven't they got those things yet well because look it's already been answered for you because the kingdom does not appear immediately he goes away to receive it and the only time it's going to be um, brought about is when the son of man comes back in his glory we're waiting for the second coming that's what's going to bring these together but in the meantime the new covenant's been inaugurated do you see and that's going to be important for the church right see look look at the look at the logic of this red look at the logic of this so jesus comes, okay, first coming forget the red <laughs> first coming okay, 
Then he goes back. Okay, he ascends. The kingdom does not come immediately. So, you know, there's no... Um, this is a crown. So there's no crown, okay, immediately. Okay, so we've got, we've got an intervening period. Now, he's going to come back again sometime. That's second coming. Okay, and then he doesn't go back up again. Then you get the kingdom. Do you see? Yeah, because the kingdom's on earth. So what about all this stuff? What about this, this gap here? What happens? The world goes to part. Nobody gets saved. The plan just falls flat on its face until he decides to come back again. Everybody goes to hell between this. Do you see? So the new covenant had to be inaugurated here in order for people to be saved in this intervening period. Do you get that? I mean, it is logical, isn't it? All right. Now, notice who it's made with. It's made with Jewish disciples. And later on, as we pointed out last time, he says in verse uh, 30, you're going to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes of Israel still very much in the plan of God at the second coming, folks. Now, jump over to Matthew 19 quickly and let's see Jesus say the same kind of thing, but I think even more trenchantly in in this passage, Matthew 19. Verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration... Okay. Notice that he's using a technical term here. In the regeneration, as if they should know what the regeneration is. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the regeneration, that's this, folks. That's this. Generation. All right. This is the streams and the desert stuff. This is the wolf lying down with the lamb stuff. This is the regeneration here of the whole earth. This is when the Prince of Peace, the one who already showed that he could stop the the wind and the waves, comes and by his own power, by his own peace, by his own glory, brings peace to the whole earth that is his. He's the one who who uh, who uh, makes makes the thistles go away. Yes, yes. and bring makes the makes the flowers and the trees and the plants produce the way that they should. In fact, so much so that in Amos nine, uh, the uh, the reaper overtakes the sower. There's so much 
production going on. Do you see? There's so much beauty being um, and productivity, uh, verdure that's that's being produced by His presence. There's streams coming out of the glorified temple, Ezekiel's temple, in the renewed and um, completely replanned out Jerusalem after the massive earthquake. And it's coming down from the, from the mountain that Jerusalem will be on and it's the, the waters are waters of life and they are going into the salt waters and they're making everything live. Do you see? This is the kingdom. This is the regeneration he's talking about. They would know what he's talking about because they, they'd read the prophets. And we, we've read about these things over and over again in the last course, didn't we? Yeah, thank you, John. Somebody's been paying attention. All right. So in this, this is when they will be judging. Hold on, hold the phone. That, how, that's not possible, is it? Because he's making the new covenant with, with these people. And now I want to do something that I wouldn't normally do, but I've got to do it because uh, it's important to clear away a little bit of, uh, of a question. So let's quickly go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because there is a question looming over here. How can the new covenant be made with a bunch of Israelites and they've been given uh, thrones judging Israel and yet I thought they were important to the church too. You see? Notice this. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death what? till he comes Okay, till he comes. Don't ever forget the till he comes. Um, now, he's going back to the Luke 22 passage, just see, with the disciples. Ephesians chapter 2. Who's uh, the Corinthians? Bunch of Jews? Who are the Corinthians? They're Gentiles. Ephesians 2.20 in fact verse 19 gives us the context now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone we will get back to this and deal with it in more detail but the foundation of the church, because this is what he's dealing about, dealing with in Ephesians, is the apostles. Okay? Prophets there, that's New Testament prophets. You have to take it from me for the time being. 
But um, the apostles, they're the foundation of the church. So if they're the foundation of the church, they must be in the church. How can they be in the kingdom judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Do you see? On thrones. Well, we're going to get to that. Okay? And I don't want to give too much away. But all I want you to see is that there is a commonality and there's a distinction. Okay? There's a unity, but there's also a plurality. There's a unity to Israel, there's a unity to the church, but then there's a a kind of a plurality between the two peoples as well. Okay? A plurality, sorry, a plurality of peoples. And we'll get to that, but I want you to see it. Uh, But the new covenant covers both groups. It's made with the disciples and Paul has no problem in going back to Luke 22 and then applying it to the church, a bunch of Gentiles. So the new covenant's made with us. And we celebrate it when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Unless you're a certain kind of dispensationalist who says that the new covenant's only made with with Israel. Then I don't know what you're doing celebrating the Lord's Supper and when he says the new covenant in my blood. But that's a theological problem that shouldn't be a theological problem um, for people who say that they believe in progressive revelation. All right. So, this is how these things can be pulled together. We ought to expect that at the second coming, because the new covenant has been made now, because, remember, you will... Uh, not see me until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord okay well they will when they will they will be saved and the new covenant will be made with them and all Israel will be saved do you see we'll get to that and so Jeremiah 31 will come to pass on Israel and that's who Jeremiah is talking about but what about this thing here who's going to fill in this because uh, Israel's rejected Jesus Israel's going to accept Jesus what's going to go on here well it hadn't been revealed here but it was in the plan of God all the time yes yes and the new covenant is going to be made with Israel here but here it's going to be made with the church. Yes, do you see? Yes, because the new covenant is Jesus. It's not a thing, it's a person. And the focus of Israel when they believe is going to be Jesus. And our focus is on Jesus. And he is the new covenant. That's so it's the same new covenant because it's the same Jesus. You see that? What this does, folks, is that um, it makes... See, I've, I've said that the Bible is covenantal. Okay, These are the great big signposts in the Bible. You follow them through the Bible. 
but these are brought together by the new covenant. The new covenant is a person, which means the one who is front and centre of the whole program of God is Jesus. Not in your face, reading him into every single line, spiritualizing every single passage in the Bible to try and see him there. No, but he stands behind everything. And when he comes back, he stands there in his glory as the one who pulls everything together. Everything goes through him. The whole creation relies on him. The whole thing is Christological. Isn't that amazing? It really is. Okay. So the um, covenant's a person, Jesus Christ. Yes. What are the other ones? Well, this the Noahic covenant is a is a just a promise of God. Just promise. Okay, but it's an oath that He swears. So a covenant is more than a promise; it's an oath to do something. Uh, to undertake something. Same with the Abrahamic covenant, same with the priestly covenant and the Davidic covenant. Once God has sworn the oath, especially if it's unilateral, in other words, if he's the only one who enters into the oath and swears the oath, okay, he's obligated to fulfill it. He has to fulfill it, which means that these have to be fulfilled one day. God has to find a way of fulfilling them. The problem is, he can't fulfill them on sinners. So we need salvation, redemption. And redemption, remember, was in a sense built into the very beginning. Genesis 3.15. Okay? Although that's uttered to the serpent, there's a hint there that in defeat, in the defeat of Satan, there will be Redemption for the man and the woman. Okay. So, we are ready, I think. I'm trying to wrap my brain here to make sure that I haven't forgotten anything. We are ready to go into the book of Acts. You say, what about the Gospel of John? Well, the Gospel of John only speaks about the Kingdom of God twice. It's not written for that purpose. Now, it certainly does have some, uh, you know, eschatology in it, but for our purposes, we can get enough material from the Synoptic Gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke, uh, to, to skip John. Okay? In systematic theology, you can't skip John, but in eschatology, you kind of can. Oh, sorry, in, in uh, biblical theology you kind of can. Um, if you're looking at a covenantal picture. Okay? It's not to say there isn't material in here. It's just that I don't need to go there. If I had more time, we would. Okay? All right. <clears throat> the thing that uh, is particularly interesting about... Um, John's perspective is John is writing around 80-85 AD and so he's writing pretty much in, well into the end of the first phase of the church age you know it's, like, it's 50 years old 50 or 60 years old by the time he's writing it and uh, 
So now his purpose is different than the purpose of Matthew and Luke and Mark. Do you see? He's, he's reflecting and pulling out of the significance of Jesus who he is as the God-man, the Saviour. That's where his focus is. Now Luke wrote one book in two parts. So you could say he wrote two books, fair enough. But it's basically, as most scholars I think hold to, it's one book in two parts. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Are you cold? Should we close this door? Let's close this door now. I'm just trying to... Yeah, we don't need it open anymore. And you notice there's no moths flying in tonight because they're all, they're all at home with their fur coats on. All right. So, Acts chapter 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Uh, notice that, that uh, onus on suffering there, do you see? He's the suffering saviour, the one that was promised. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, which is what he was preaching in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke's going to kick us off on the same note, kingdom of God. And again, if we, if we read the church into Acts 1, we're not going to read it correctly. We're going to think kingdom of God is um, the church, which is what many Christians have done. And they've not understood uh, and reported correctly the expectation of, uh, that Luke is trying to communicate here. Can I take this off? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, we're not going to have time to go back to regeneration, but when we get to Acts 3, okay, 19 and 21, we're going to go back to that word regeneration. Okay? So you're telling us that Acts is still... um so far I am that's what I'm saying at the moment now we will see indicators we'll start to see indicators soon that things are changing okay but the expectation is never um, obliterated it's never washed away yes All right. So we have the risen Christ now that we're dealing with. Okay. And he is teaching the disciples. I think by now they've got the the fact that he's going to die and rise again. Okay? They didn't fully get that, but now they get it. No problem with that one. So You mean after he rose again? After he actually died and rose again, yes. So, but he's still teaching them here. What is he teaching them? 
things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Alright, verse 3. You think Jesus is a pretty decent teacher? Okay, are there any teachers here? Any school teachers? Okay, well, no, no, that's good. Homeschool, yeah, yes. Okay. Look, I once, uh, I'm, I am terrible at math, okay? Just not very good. Although I've somehow stumbled through a business degree thing, but I, um, kind of spluttered out the other side. But I, yeah. But I'm not very good at math. Um, I don't have a head for numbers. You know, some people have a head for numbers. I worked with a guy once, years ago, who remembered all of my number plates, all of my license plates, on the cars I used to have. Okay? And then he remembered everybody else's too, that he worked with. It's like, you're just weird. He had a head for numbers. He could work numbers out like this. Okay? And I was just, it's just like a miracle to me that he could do that. I can't do that. I find, I sometimes have to think twice to remember my home address. You know, is it 8641 or 8461 or, you know, I have to think. No, no, it's just, yeah. So, I don't have a head for numbers. Uh, years and years ago, uh, in a small town called Stamford in, uh, in England, it's actually used for, it's one of those period places, so it's, uh, it's used for um, the BBC productions, you know, trying to go back to the uh, Charles Dickens days. Martin Chuzzlewit was, was filmed there. Um, <clears throat> so I was there in Stamford doing street preaching, and I was preaching on the wall of a graveyard with a church behind me. The church had been converted into some shops. Okay? And I was preaching out to a bunch of shops. I mean, very old, very ancient buildings, but they were made into shops. In um, a square in, in Stamford. In a cafe opposite was a friend of mine who was the professor of mathematics at Cairo University in Egypt. And while I was preaching, I noticed he was doodling on his napkin. Okay? And so when I'd finished, I went over and I said, what were you doing? And he said, I was working out the distance from the table to where you were preaching. And he showed me all this, <laughs> s- this scratching stuff, you know, um, that he was, he'd worked out. And I said, that is just, I, I just, that's just amazing to me. I don't know how you can even think that way. I'm terrible at math. And he said to me, that's because you had a bad teacher. And I said, no, it's because I'm dim. And, and he said, you're not dim. He said, but you had a bad teacher. Um, I've always remembered him uh, saying that. Um, Professor Kamal. His name was. And um, Jesus was not a bad teacher. 
so the disciples understanding now the disciples understanding of Jesus was not because of Jesus the clarity of Jesus teaching okay we must first say that they had finally got that he was going to die and rise again as I've said okay no problem with that one anymore but they ask him a question here after he's been teaching them what? about the kingdom of God this is what he's been teaching them let's see how well they did well ask a question how well do you think they did? sorry? no no don't say that don't say that let's read Verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. So that's one thing that he was teaching them. And they understood that, and they didn't depart. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Well, that's something that goes right back to, actually, the ministry of John the Baptist, doesn't it? Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the, what? Kingdom. Kingdom to Israel. He's been teaching them about the kingdom. To them, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Israel. Okay? There's no doubt about that from everything we've read in the Bible so far, including Luke's gospel. There's absolutely no doubt. Did Jesus say anything to controvert or change their expectation which was based on the testimony of God in the Old Testament not a thing ok so let's see how Jesus answers this question because in the kingdom of God he restores the kingdom of Israel yes he does that's, that's what it's promises. all that's, that's part of the, prov- the covenantal promises yes it's a major part so they have a right to answer, answer, apart from the fact that, remember, Luke has already clued us into the fact that the kingdom doesn't appear immediately. And this is not very, <laughs> not very long afterwards. This is a month afterwards or something like that. <laughs> All right. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, Jesus occasionally got exasperated with the disciples. Okay? Um, one time in Mark's Gospel we hear of the fact that Jesus is solemnly telling them that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And you know what's the very next thing that Mark reports? As they're going along there, the disciples are um, they're talking to each other about which one's going to be the top dog in the kingdom. He's just told them he's going to die. What are they talking about? It's like, you know, not interested in that one. Let's talk about something interesting. Like, who's going to be Mr. Big in the kingdom? 
And um, do you see how... And he gets exasperated with them. All right? And as anyone would. Surely, after all of this time and all of this teaching by the best teacher in the world, if they'd have got this wrong, we wouldn't have heard from Jesus, it's not for you to know the time of the season. We would have said, we would have heard something like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know? I've just been teaching you for 40 days about the kingdom. And what about all this stuff I've been teaching you in the Gospels? And so on. I've been with you for three and a half years here and you still haven't got this. The kingdom of the, of the Old Testament, it's a spiritual kingdom. He doesn't do that, does he? John Calvin in his Acts commentary, he says that the disciples were dim and they asked all the, long, all the wrong questions. And it can, it's just all a bunch of nonsense. Their, their, their question is completely wrong-headed. Do you think it's wrong-headed after what we've been studying? No, it's completely in track with what Luke's given us to expect. And Jesus... He doesn't seem to think it's uh, wrong-headed either. They asked about what? What did they ask about? In particular, what did they ask about? What's about the the restoring of the kingdom? The time. Yeah, the time. So how does Jesus answer them? Does he answer their question? He says it's not for you to know the time he doesn't say what do you mean the kingdom of God the kingdom of Israel the kingdom of Israel the kingdom of Israel okay we're going into the church age folks no he doesn't do that the kingdom of Israel is alive and well remember Jesus had promised them that in the regeneration they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel do you think they forgot that it was only two, you know, six weeks previously. I don't think they forgot it. You say, well, why am I getting so um, passionate about this? Because I would say even the majority of Christian commentators have said that Jesus here is dismissing the question. And refocusing them on the church. Now he is refocusing on them on the fact the Holy Spirit is coming. Because he says it's not for you to know the time. But he does not dismiss their expectation. He does not do anything to deflect it at all. Yeah, I don't think it's unreasonable for them not to think it's in their lifetime. Yeah. So, and he says it's just not for you to know. But in the meantime, do this. In the meantime, this is what you, this is what God has for you. Alright? Please remember this, this moment. Please remember this time, okay, as we move through the book of Acts and as with particularly when we get into Paul's letters. Okay, and we're going to give you church, 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 and you're going to be thinking church and you're going to have your church heads on again. And you're going to feel all comfortable because you're part of the church.
Okay, and that's fine. It's good for you to feel comfortable that way. But I want you to see the church and I want you to see your role biblically. Not just in the sense of the way that um, Christian teachers have Christianized the whole Bible. Which shouldn't have been done because the whole Bible's not written doctrinally specifically to Christians. Okay? We don't sacrifice animals nowadays, do we? We're not waiting for the redemption of, of Israel. So, there are lots of things in the Bible that are we, we can learn from, and Paul talks about the fact these things were recorded so that we learn from them. And we certainly do learn from them. And they're examples for us. But, uh, doctrinally, they mean what they say in their contexts. When he had spoken these things, they, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Okay. So he's gone, taken up from Mount Olivet. Okay. The the, uh, the, uh, angels say he's going to come down as they saw him go. Okay. Zechariah 14 verse 4 talks about the return of the Lord. And it says, if I can get there, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, and so on. What was that, 14.4? 14.4, Zechariah. Yes, same, yeah. Um, This is, and we're told in verse uh, 5 and verse 9 that this is the Lord, the King over all the earth. Um, In that very context. And then you've got kingdom language in Zechariah. Again, that confirms the expectation. It confirms the expectation to the reader of Acts that all that he's read before in the Old Testament uh, can be expected. When he comes back, he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. Just as Zechariah has prophesied. But not yet. Why do you stand looking? Do you say, <laughs> you've got things to do. And then it goes on, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Do you see? Notice as we move on here, um, uh, let's go from verse 15. In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of the names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, 
who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Um, He went out and hung himself in in Luke's Gospel. But here you see, or in John's Gospel, but uh, here you see he uh, maybe hung himself over a precipice or something, but his bloated body probably fell and this happened to it. Um, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, notice the qualification there in verse 21, beginning from the baptism of John, To the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Please notice that word, resurrection. Not crucifixion. It's not that the crucifixion is not important. But what you're going to see here in the early chapters of Acts is not an emphasis so much on the crucifixion as on the resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbath, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, O Lord, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. That's a strange thing to say about Judas. I don't know. His own place as in the place, the field that he bought, that was his place? No, no, I don't know. It's a very strange thing to say. But, you know, there are some strange things said about Judas. Have you ever noticed that? Let's go to John here. This is where we'll close. John chapter 6. You know about this, that uh, you've got the flesh and blood uh, dialogue, or sorry, monologue from Jesus, and they all go away from him. Verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, he has the words of eternal life because he is eternal life. (laughs) And he's the Word. And he is the new covenant which provides the eternal life. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Yes, and the word that's used here by Jesus is diabolos, okay, which is used of the devil. That's not this word, daemon, which is, you know, we get our word demon from it, okay, which is often used. You know, when the demons talk, it's this one, but he uses this one, okay? 
He doesn't say one of you is the devil. He just says one of you is a diabolos. Okay? And it says he's talking about Judas. That's a very strange thing to say about him. Isn't it? It's a weird thing to say about him. Right, but it had to be set up that way. Fulfill prophecy and everything else, right? Uh, Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um, He's Judas. Some homework for you. Ish. Kerioth. Okay? Which, you know, Greek is Iscariot. Why don't you look up that man of Kerioth? Okay, ish. K E R. Yeah. Why don't you look up this town, Kerioth, in the Old Testament? Let's see if there's anything interesting that you're going to come up with. Like where it is. Concordance, yeah. Uh, yeah, Blue Letter Bible or, you know, one of those online programs will do it for you. Just put in that word and it will show you all the instances of it and just read the context. Okay? But he's interesting because uh, Kerioth is not in Israel. <coughs> yeah. It's actually in, um, well, really modern day Jordan. Moab, exactly, in Moab. And not God doesn't seem to like Moab very much in the Old Testament. Okay, he doesn't. So he wasn't a Jew? Well, he was, but he's a, but he, he's a man, but he's called man of Kerioth. So he's a Jew, but he's not born he in Israel. No, he's a Jew. He is a Jew. Yeah, like many people were Jews who weren't born in Israel, but he wasn't born in Israel, he's born here. Uh, and like I said, you know, this is not spoken of very well in the Old Testament. So he's a strange guy, Judas, he really is. He's a strange guy. He's also a money guy. He's a money guy too. Yeah. All right, we'll leave it there. <clears throat> Next week, uh, chapter chapters two and three of Acts. Chapters two and three of Acts.